0: dramatic uh, scene in the life of the early church uh, that we saw last week in Acts chapter 3 where uh, Peter and John heal a man who was uh, born uh, crippled. And upon healing this man, a crowd gathers and uh, Peter, as he did even in Acts chapter 2, preaches the gospel to those who are uh, listening, points them to Jesus, calls them to repentance. I want you to think this morning about the word bold, What's the word bold what, and, and things that might come to mind when you think of that word. Maybe you think of a setting for the font on your computer next to italic and underline. Right. Maybe you think of a barbecue sauce. I don't know why. When I think of bold, I think of barbecue sauce commercials. And Maybe you think of like Chili's baby back ribs or something like that. Maybe, maybe, though, maybe, though, after you get through all of those things, you, you think about the essence of the word to be bold. What does that mean to be for something to be bold, it's to stand out, to be to be confident, to be uh, assured, to be assertive uh, of something that is known to be true? Bold is a word that appears several times in the text that we're looking at today. Acts chapter four, verses one through thirty one. Bold is a word that that is embodied by Peter and John in this chapter, as they give confident assertion, not to a barbecue sauce or <laughs> anything like that, but, but confident assertion and affirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of and in the midst of a difficult, even threatening audience. This text this morning will challenge us As believers to bear bold witness to Jesus in difficult circumstances. Relying upon the Holy Spirit's provision and direction to do that very task. Turning our attention to Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 31. As we read this together, I would ask that you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John. The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If nothing else, in this passage today, we have a clear picture in at least two different places of gospel boldness in the life of the early church. Gospel boldness in the life of the early church. Let's look first uh, at the first instance of this in verses 1 through 22, where we see a bold witness to the gospel. A bold witness to the gospel. Here, first in verses 1 through 4, we see the arrest of Peter and John. After Peter and John have healed this man who was born crippled, And they're preaching the name of Jesus. They're arrested by the Pharisees or by the Sadducees and the the priests and the captain of the guard that is there in the temple. But I want you to notice why they are arrested. Why Luke says to us that they are arrested specifically because in verse two, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't arrested because they healed a crippled man. They weren't arrested because they were drawing a crowd. They were arrested because they were preaching in the name of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is not simply preaching or proclaiming that Jesus himself was raised from the dead, but instead that Jesus, uh, the one who was raised from the dead, in him, the resurrection of the dead for all people is now possible. Sadducees, these uh, group among the, the Jewish ruling elite in that day, were of the sort of more theologically conservative, but yet politically more liberal group. They relied only upon the written Torah—that is, the first five books of the uh, of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy—in terms of how to live their lives. They didn't, like the Pharisees, follow spoken tradition or taught tradition. Only what the the Scriptures had said. These Sadducees denied the resurrection wholesale. They didn't believe that anyone would be raised from the dead. That once someone died, you were dead, and that was it. But that the apostles are preaching the resurrection in Jesus, not just of Jesus, but the resurrection in Jesus, through Jesus, was for them to say that Jesus, as the Messiah, has inaugurated a new messianic age. He is beginning the the days that many of the prophets in the Old Testament had prophesied about and, and had foreseen. This messianic age would be an age that would be ultimately detrimental to the Jewish ruling elite because now the Messiah, God's chosen one, is on the scene and ruling. And now there's no place for the Sadducees, for the Pharisees as well, to rule. Preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus was uh, to the detriment of the Sadducees' accumulated power and influence in Jerusalem. And because the apostles and disciples are preaching in the name of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, they are arrested. Know this today, that that when you start talking about Jesus and making exclusive claims about Jesus, like that he is the only way to know God, that only by faith in him can your sins be forgiven, can you be right with the God who created you, making exclusive statements like that in the name of Jesus tends to cut the crowd, doesn't it? tends to divide people into those who, who, who are, are, are maybe accepting of those claims or, or are more interested in hearing those claims and those who reject them outright. Christian, know this. As you speak about Jesus in the world around you, you can expect that name to cut the crowd, to cut the audience, to cut the group of people that you are speaking to. It's easy in our day and culture to talk about God in relatively generic or amorphous terms, sort of nebulous terms. Lots of people talk about God. We're not always talking about the same God, but we're using the same word for that thing. And so that word floats in culture a little bit more easily. But you lay Jesus on the table and you might as well have just thrown a live grenade into a crowded room. That's what the name of Jesus does. There is truth associated with the name of jesus that cuts that convicts that divides it happens here in acts chapter four and it will happen in our lives as well the disciples uh peter and john specifically are arrested here in verses one through four and then in verses five through twelve on the next day we have the hearing that they have before the sadducees verse five says on the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in jerusalem Peter and John were arrested in the afternoon of one day. We, we know from Acts chapter 3 that they were gathered for the afternoon prayer and worship time. They were arrested that afternoon. But the Sanhedrin, that, that group of uh, Jewish rulers made up of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and priests and others, they only met to convene and to have hearings like this in the morning. So they had Peter and John arrested and, uh, and had them detained until they could meet with them the next day. In verse 7, we have the inquiry, the question that the Sanhedrin asks of uh, these disciples. The Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish rulers, want to know from Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this thing? By what power, by what name did you heal this crippled man that we read about in Acts chapter 3? The question of the name by which Peter and John have healed the man has already been settled for us. We saw that last week in Acts chapter 3, verse 16. It's in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that these things were done. And that is ultimately the same answer that the disciples that, uh, will give to the Sanhedrin. In verses 8 through 12, we have the apostles' response to that inquiry at this hearing. There in verse 8, we find Peter filled with the Holy Spirit responds to their accusation or responds to their question. You might be wondering, what does this mean that he was filled with the Holy Spirit? Is this like Pentecost 2.0? Well, no. Uh, when, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and, and indwelt the lives of the apostles and disciples that were meeting in that upper room, he, he fell completely and, and perfectly. He filled their lives perfectly at that time and dwelt them perfectly, never to leave again. Instead, what we see here, this filling with the Spirit that we'll see later at the end of Acts chapter 4, that we'll see uh, uh, later on in Acts in the person of Stephen and in others as well, is rather a fresh endowment of power for gospel witness that the Holy Spirit is giving to Peter and John. Holy Spirit never left them. Holy Holy Spirit never departed from their souls. But the Holy Spirit is giving to Peter at, at a critical moment a fresh endowment of power for witness to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 20, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Sound familiar to what's happening right now in Acts 4? Jesus says, and continuing in verse 19, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus had promised in Matthew 10, now is is going to, to give an answer, to give a defense for the gospel, for Christ, before this group of governors in Jerusalem. And he does this filled with the Holy Spirit, not as a jerk. Now it's entirely possible that Peter and Peter's kind of a hothead, right? We know from, from the gospels that Peter is this guy who just acts impulsively who says dumb things that nobody should say, who sometimes out of impulse says really, really great things. And then the next moment just says, really just trips all over himself. Peter has what I often have uh, a foot in mouth disease. It's just, he, Before he can even think about it, his Chuck tees are already halfway down his throat. But here in this instance, in Acts chapter four, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter responds not, not impulsively, not impetuously, not like a jerk, but with respect for the Sanhedrin, for these people that have arrested them and are now questioning them. He says, rulers of the people and elders. Now, you might not see much in his address to them, but he's recognizing who they are that they are rulers, that they are elders, that they are respected authorities in the community. Peter is being respectful. He continues on to answer their question, saying that the power, the name in which the healing has taken place, the healing of this crippled man, is in that name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This Jesus, he said, was the one who was crucified by the Jewish rulers just, you know, several days, several weeks before. And the Romans uh, as well under Pontius Pilate and Herod and those that had conspired to have Jesus crucified. And that the same Jesus that was delivered to be crucified was also raised from the dead by God the Father. Peter points them to the core of the gospel message that, that, that is the core of, of our gospel message as a church today. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, who, who was who lived perfectly without sin gave his life on a cross dying a death he didn't deserve for the sins for the trespasses for the failings the the moral inadequacies of all humanity he died there to to pay the penalty for that but Christ didn't remain dead the, God of the universe who who took on flesh in, in, in Jesus through his Holy Spirit raises Jesus from the dead so that Christ is not dead forever for the sins of the world, but that he died once for the sins of the world and now has been raised so that those who are in Christ might also have new life. That is the core of our gospel message. That is the core of Peter's gospel message here to the Sanhedrin. But then he alludes to Psalm chapter 118 verse 22 here in verse 11. You notice in verse 11, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23 say this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Peter, saying that Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders have rejected, is demonstrating to the Sanhedrin, this Jewish ruling council, that Jesus is the very cornerstone of God's redemptive work in the world. He's the foundation of all of God's saving activity in the world. And ironically, those who should have been most ready to receive this cornerstone and to be built upon him have rejected him. Peter then turns... After giving this convicting message to the Sanhedrin. And calls them to salvation. He says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. Given among men. By which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven. Given among men. By which we must be saved. In this way Jesus the son of God. And risen Lord is the only savior. Of any man, woman, child on earth. A statement like this, that Jesus is the only one, is emphatically exclusive. It is to make Jesus singular among many. To, to, to say that to, it is to effectively narrow in a dramatic way the, the road to knowing God, the road to salvation, the road to eternal life. Peter uses this verb, it is necessary. This Greek verb here which is translated for us uh, as must in the English Standard Version, to point the Sanhedrin uh, to the exclusivity of Jesus, that he's the only Savior, and to the need of every person for salvation from sin. Notice Peter doesn't say he, he's the only name under heaven given among, among men by which you might choose to be saved. or And he doesn't also say uh, right? he's one of the names under heaven that, that through which you could be saved. But he says he's the only name under heaven by which you must be saved. For Peter to say to the Sanhedrin, you must be saved, is to indicate that there's something they must be saved from. There are sins. There are transgressions. There's rebellion against God that they need saving from. Friend, you're not any better than the Sanhedrin. You must be saved. I'm not any better than these Jewish rulers. I must be saved. Saved I have sins I have I have treasonous acts in my heart In my mind in my actions against The God who created me that I need Saving from These sorts of treasonous acts against A just and holy wonderful loving Pure God deserve Death The Bible tells us but there's Salvation from those sins and there's Salvation in the name of Jesus the son of God who died for sins was raised From the dead and, he's, and his is the only name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Friend, you need to be saved. If you're here this morning, you, you don't know Jesus, but you know you've got sin. Know that you must be saved. And the good news is there is a way to be saved. The good news is you can know Jesus, the son of God, and by faith in him and in his name placing your life in the life of Jesus, who's been risen from the dead, who's now sitting next to God the Father in heaven, ruling and reigning over the universe by giving your life to Christ, turning from your sin. You can be saved. Friend, you must be saved. The good news is you can be saved. Peter gives this, uh, he, he gives this, this, this uh, uh, gospel message to the Sanhedrin. And then in verses 13 through 22, we, we see... The uh, Sanhedrin uh, excuse Peter and John for a moment while they confer. In these verses, we have the warning and release, ultimately, of these apostles. In verse 13, we find that the answer of Peter and John to the Sanhedrin is, there nothing less than bold. Text says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that is the confidence of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. The boldness of the disciples is recognized by these Jewish rulers. Peter and John, being uneducated, common men, they're fishermen from Galilee, blue-collar guys without formal educational training, are here now standing before these learned and revered council of Jewish rulers under potential threat to their livelihood. And they would need nothing other than the boldness and the courage, the confidence in the gospel that the Holy Spirit would supply in this instance. It's the very boldness that the believers pray for in chapter 4, verse 29, which we'll see in a few moments. And it's the very boldness that the believers receive in the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 31, that we'll also see here in a few moments. Chapter 4, verse 14 tells us this seeing the man who was healed standing behind uh, beside them they had nothing to say in opposition this is quite a scene if you'll imagine it try as they might the sanhedrin cannot come up with a compelling reason to punish the apostles they have they have uh nothing more for very evidence of the the power that uh, uh that that the apostles have worked uh, uh in they have nothing more for evidence than the man who was healed a man that they have known for over 40 years who was completely crippled lying at the gate of the temple every day for those 40 years now standing next to the apostles that's pretty dramatic evidence as to what has happened so they can't really punish the apostles because of this thing that has gone on and because of the crowd of others that are beginning to follow them, the, uh, the, the, the kind of rapport that they are building with the community of Jews there in Israel and the following that is gathering. And so they decide to give them a warning in verses 15 through 18. There they clear the courtroom, and the council confers to arrive at a consensus. And so rather than denying uh, the sign, denying the miracle that had happened, and commanding the disciples to stop healing, they instead only determined to command them not to preach the resurrection of the dead in the name of and because of Jesus anymore. You can heal people if you want to, is their decision. Just don't do it in the name of Jesus. You can work signs and wonders and you can gather crowds and you can cheat and you can teach just not in the name of Jesus. Thus, the Sanhedrin sentence is directly related to their initial question, their initial charge, right? Their first question to the apostles was, by what name have you done this thing? By what power have you done this sign? The answer is in the name of Jesus. And they didn't like that they were preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus. They knew that these things were done in the name of Jesus. They don't really mind that this guy was healed. It's it's good PR for the temple anyway. (laughs) Just not in the name of Jesus because that undercuts all of our authority as a Sanhedrin. So they determined to tell the disciples, just don't teach in the name of Jesus. Do whatever you want, just not in the name of Jesus. The presenting issue here is not that Peter and John have performed a sign but the name in which they are teaching and preaching. It's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the resurrection of the dead for all men, women, and children who by faith are united to Christ being preached in his name that the Sadducees take issue with most. It's the very name of Jesus with all of its associated messianic overtones that threatens the council's power. As such, it's no surprise that they do not charge Peter and John not to heal, but rather just not to preach in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus cuts. The name of Jesus will split a crowd. It'll split an audience. It's a live grenade in the middle of the room. So Sadducees are saying, hey, you do whatever you want. Throw whatever you want in the middle of the room. You can throw a grenade in the middle of the room. Just, don't, just leave the pin in it. Okay? Don't unleash the power of this thing. In verses 19 and 20, we see the apostles responding to the charge. The Sadducees call them back in. They say, this is what you want you to do. And in verses 19 and 20, we see their bold response to the Sanhedrin. Peter and John's response to the prohibition of their preaching demonstrates to them their spirit-given boldness yet again. In verse 19, we read this. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Being commanded not to preach in Jesus' name is a command that directly runs contrary to their own conscience and to the commands that Christ had given to them. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, right? Jesus says, uh, Go therefore. Go therefore make disciples of all nations Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus told the, the apostles, the disciples You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you And you will be my witnesses The disciples, the apostles have a mandate From Jesus to be his witnesses To make disciples, to teach people To obey Jesus This command from the Sadducees, from the Sanhedrin, runs completely contrary to that. So they have a problem of conscience here. And their answer to the Sanhedrin is essentially this. Whether we should obey God in this or obey you, we leave to your judgment. You decide what is better for us. But here's what we're going to do. We can't do anything other than what Jesus Christ of Nazareth, crucified, risen, now ascended, has commanded us to do. You tell us to do whatever you want to tell us to do. Here's what we're telling you we must do. We cannot stop being his witnesses. We cannot stop testifying to the truth of what we have seen and heard. They give a bold response to a serious prohibition from the Sanhedrin. And interestingly enough, in the face of this bold response, in verse 21, we see the disciples being, the apostles being, released. There we read in verses 21 and 22, When they had further threatened them, they let them go. So they said, well, now we're telling you one more time. Don't do it in the name of Jesus. Now get out of here. (laughs) Finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The Sadducees have no real grounds for punishing the apostles. They haven't done anything wrong. They've just done some things that the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin don't like. They can't do anything more than threaten them another time and send them on their way. Now, their threats aren't toothless threats. They have teeth. This root group of, of Jewish rulers are the same ones that, that, that arrested Jesus in the middle of night and had him uh, crucified the next day. Right? So their, their threats aren't toothless. But they are powerless, ultimately. These apostles, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with power to be gospel witnesses, recognize this. And they know what they are convicted of. They know what Christ has called them to do. To be bold witnesses in every opportunity, irrespective of what may be threatened to them. Church, when we look at Peter and John here in these first several verses of Acts chapter 4, we should be encouraged to do this. That whenever God gives opportunity, and he will, whenever God gives opportunity, boldly speak the gospel with all humility and respect. Whenever God gives you a chance, gives you an opening, gives you a way to pivot a conversation to the gospel, do it with boldness. But also do it with humility and respect. In applying the principles of Peter and John's defense before the Sanhedrin to our lives in this way, we assume what we were encouraged to do from our text even last week, that we are being attentive and obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading in gospel-sharing opportunities, that we're paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives and the opportunities he's giving us to share Jesus with others. But we're also recognizing here that being bold with the gospel does not imply that we might be rude with the gospel. Peter and John recognize and respect the authority that they are under. And they answer that authority with humility and with respect. Now in your job, maybe you're a teacher, you're a government employee, you work in the public sector. There might be rules against or prohibiting you from talking about your faith and other related matters to the gospel while on the clock. I recognize we have several teachers, we have several government employees here... ...where you may actually have those provisions or prohibitions written out in your work contract. In cases like this, being bold with the gospel does not mean you go out of your way... ...to break the rules to speak about Christ. In fact, breaking these rules might actually work against your Christian witness... ...communicating that Christians don't care about submitting to authority at all. Instead, as Christians, we work hard at our jobs... We follow the direction of our bosses and managers and we pray hard for opportunity to share the gospel in the right way and at the right time so that God is glorified in it and our witness to Christ is bolstered by our work ethic and our care for others. But I would imagine that most of us don't have explicit rules about not sharing our faith at work. I would guess that in the majority of situations, the reason we're not actually courageous and confident in sharing the gospel with others is either one we are uncertain of what to say. Two, though we would never say it, we just really don't care enough to pray and seek opportunities to speak with our non Christian friends and coworkers and family about Jesus. Or three, we're afraid of what people would think of us if they found out we were believers, if they actually heard us share the gospel with them. We are afraid of what people will say about us, how they might treat us or our families if we speak the truth about Jesus. But notice that none of, these three, none of these three things, uncertainty about what to say, apathy for the lost, or, or fear of potential consequences, none of these things were issues that Peter and John faced. Peter and John didn't worry about what to say because they knew the gospel message. They knew it. They were certain of it. There's no question in their mind about what the gospel was. Christian, if someone at your work asked you, what is the gospel? Could you, in two to three minutes, give them the gospel? As clearly as Peter and John, could you point them to the good news of salvation in Jesus' name? They were not apathetic, but had a deep love and sense of urgency for those around them who were without Christ, including the Jewish ruling elite, the supposed untouchables in the city. They cared about their salvation. And because they knew that nothing was more important than knowing Christ and that their souls were secure in the hand of Jesus, they had nothing to fear before the Sanhedrin. The San- Sanhedrin's threats had teeth, but not teeth that could separate them from the love of God that is in Christ. Peter and John and you could be bold witnesses to Christ because they knew the gospel. They loved the lost and they were secure in their own knowledge of God Christian can you say those same same Three things with confidence about you Do you want To be a bold witness when the opportunity Arises then practice These three things know the gospel Rehearse the gospel to yourself Every morning in the mirror if you have to Writing it down in your prayer journal, taping it uh, on the, I would say on your windshield, but that would be dangerous. Tape it like on the mirror in the morning. So when you're shaving or brushing your teeth or doing your hair, you're looking at, you're repeating, you're rehearsing the gospel so that you know it when the opportunity arises. Number two, really care about lost people. See them, know them, talk with them, get to know their families, get to know the things that they care about and that they love. Involve yourself in their life so that you might actually care about their soul and where they spend eternity. And then number three, walk in confidence, knowing that that as long as you are boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus with all humility and all respect in the power of the Holy Spirit, you have nothing to fear. The world might hate you. The world might kill you, Christian, but ultimately you have nothing to fear because your soul is secure in the hand of God who has saved you by faith in his son Jesus. We see Peter and John give a bold gospel witness in verses 1 through 22. And then after they're released, they go back to their friends where we find in verses 23 through 31, prayer for greater boldness with the gospel. You might expect... The, the believers, the early church, upon Peter and John arriving after having been arrested for the first time and having given a defense for the gospel before the Sanhedrin, you might find the church, uh, expect to find them rattled, to find them shaken, to find them somehow stirred and maybe afraid. Goodness, what else is coming? Right, This early on, they're already being arrested. What's next? Are we going to be killed? That's not what we find at all. Rather, we find a confident group of believers enter into prayer to God for greater boldness with the gospel. As they pray in verses 23 through 30, they first recognize God's sovereign hand. How can they be so confident in all this? Because God is in control. Notice how they begin their prayer in verse 24. They say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, they cite the psalm there. They say, For truly, in verse 27, in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They recognize God's sovereign hand, that He's in control of all things, of all circumstances. He's called sovereign creator of heaven and earth to sees everything in them. He is the God who has created all that we know and see around us. <clears throat> He's also the sovereign God who has spoken prophetically through his servant, David, the king of Israel, a thousand years before this moment in the life of the church in Acts 4. There in verses 25 and 26, they cite Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And in verses 27 and 28, they take that psalm, Psalm 2, and they apply it to the events of Jesus' crucifixion. They say, all the things that David said, we saw take place. And in this way, God's sovereignty is demonstrated even through the actions of evil men. Isn't it? God's control of all things is demonstrated even through the actions of evil men. Though the Gentiles and Jewish rulers and Pontius Pilate and the people of Israel conspired to have God's Messiah, Jesus, killed their actions did little more than to fulfill God's very plan for his servant Jesus to die for the sins of mankind, including the sins of having Jesus crucified. Even what has happened to Peter and to John in being arrested for preaching the gospel is all part of God's work to spread the good news of his salvation in Jesus' name. The early church here in these verses, they see God's hand at work. God, you are doing good things through evil people and seemingly wicked circumstances to spread the gospel and the influence of it. So we trust you. You're in charge. Do what you want. They recognize God's sovereignty, and then they pray for continued ministry. They recognize God's sovereignty, and they don't, they don't shirk in the, face of peer, uh, in the face of fear. They don't, they don't cower in, in, in cowardice, but they pray for continued ministry. Verses 29 and 30 compose the heart of the church's supplication to God. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 29, as God, from his omniscient and omnipotent post, views the, as he views the threats of the Sanhedrin against the disciples, The church prays that he would grant to the apostles and the disciples, yet that word again, boldness to preach in Jesus' name. Give us confidence to preach in Jesus' name. Give us courage to preach in Jesus' name. Give us affirmation to to assert the gospel in Jesus' name, irrespective of who might threaten us. And then in verse 30, the believer's prayer for boldness is accompanied by their prayer for God's continued healing and for signs and wonders. To continue to be performed even still in the name of Jesus. The beginning of Acts chapter 3. A sign is performed in the name of Jesus. A crippled man is made well. That sign leads to a platform for Peter to share the gospel. Not just to people in it, not just to, to general people in Israel. To Israelites. To Jews that are gathered in that city. But then also to those who are in authority. One sign leads to a platform for much gospel sharing. And did you notice in Acts chapter 4. Verse 4, we read this, many of those who had heard the word believed And the number of the men in the church came to about 5,000 Some scholars think that at this point, the the early church there in Jerusalem Just several weeks after Christ's death and resurrection Now is numbering uh, somewhere around 10 to maybe 12,000 people They pray, God, you give us boldness to preach If you're going to do signs and wonders, you do them. And you'll do them in the name of Jesus. Not in our power, not in our strength, not in our name or for our reputation, but all for Christ. You do those things. Give us boldness to preach. And that's what we pray that you will do. It is certainly worth noting, as we've already said, that the believers do not pray for no more arrests. They do not pray for no challenge to the gospel. They do not pray for safety or ease. In fact, they seem to embrace the conflict that comes with gospel preaching and embrace the conflict that will follow for preaching the gospel. Rather than praying against things, against bad things to happen, the early church prays for more boldness to keep doing what Christ has saved and called them to do. Church, understand this. This early group of believers that's praying here, this isn't a group of super saints. You have the apostles, you have the 12, you have some uh, of the earlier followers of Jesus, but you've also got new converts to the faith. Regular, run of the mill, Jewish men and women who have given their lives to Christ as Messiah, who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus for salvation. These aren't special people, these aren't super saints, these are regular believers. Church, just like you, these are regular believers. Praying this thing. If regular believers in the early church can pray for boldness in the face of threats to preach the gospel. How much more than can we who have God's full revelation of himself to us in the old and the new testament. Who have seen 2000 years of church history. Who, whose current churches is, is being built up in the world on the, on the, on the backs of, the, of those who have given their lives for the gospel. How much more can we pray for boldness to do The very same believer, Christian, it is ever so important this morning in light of what these believers pray, that you determine within yourself that you will pray for boldness to declare the gospel every time the opportunity arises, every time God gives you the chance make that decision today. You won't do tomorrow what you don't determine today to do tomorrow. So determine today. To pray for boldness, to, to pray for courage through the Holy Spirit in you to declare the gospel every time the opportunity arises. So, so maybe that's uh, in the lunchroom at work with a, a, a co-worker, a couple cubicles over. Maybe an opportunity will come tomorrow. Are you prepared to with boldness and, and humility and respect and compassion to share the gospel tomorrow with that coworker? You don't know what God is planning for you tomorrow. Are you ready for that? Student, you might have an opportunity in a class, at school, on campus, at the university. Maybe your professor will ask someone in the class, who is a Christian? Why do you believe what you believe? Are you ready to give bold and confident assertion to the gospel in front of your professor and others in that moment? Are you prepared for that today? Are you prayed up for boldness tomorrow, for tomorrow what God might uh, bring your way? Senior adult, are you ready for the opportunity you might have with your younger neighbor next door or, or with uh, your golfing buddy or whatever the case might be? Are, are you ready to give bold and confident assertion to the gospel of Jesus Christ tomorrow? To call your lost coworkers and, and, and neighbors and, and golfing friends and baristas, whoever, to repentance and faith in Jesus tomorrow? Are you ready for that? Are you prayed up for that? This is a real question. This is a, a real thing that we need to give ourselves to. And not just individually, but as a church. Church, are we ready when the opportunity comes to share the gospel with any person that may come through the doors of our church on a Sunday morning? Whether we know if they're believers or not, are we ready? Are we ready for that? Or, or do we come into church and put our guard down because now we're in a safe place where we can just talk about Jesus and do christian things? We don't have to worry about sharing the gospel because we're at church. Friend, you, you don't know who's going to come to church or show up in your Bible study next Sunday morning or Tuesday night or Thursday afternoon. Are you ready to share the gospel with them in that moment? Are you prayed up for that moment? Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, colonial theologian and pastor who pastored a church in Massachusetts during the first great awakening, wrote this. He said, so it is God's will through his wonderful grace That the prayers of his saints should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. The things that happen in the book of Acts and in the early days of the church are nothing short of very great for Christ's kingdom. Nothing short of extraordinary in the world. And they are preceded by, in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, the extraordinary prayers of his people. And notice what happens in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Some some think that that there may have been some sort of loud thunderclap or, or even an earthquake, some sort of physical sense in which that room seemed to move. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, fresh endowment of power for witness, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Christian, you know what happens when you pray for boldness to share the gospel? God answers. God answers. Do you want to be bold with the gospel? That's a real question. If the answer is yes, you will pray for it and God will give it to you. If the answer is yes, God, you will pray for it and God will give it to you. Church, I want to be bold with the gospel. I want us as a body of believers to be bold with the gospel, to be courageous, to be confident in the gospel. And to proclaim it to those that we have opportunity to do it. But we won't be bold with it until we pray that God would make us that way. This morning, as we respond to God's word, we're going to do that in singing. It's a little bit different than the way we normally respond. We always respond in singing. But today, I'm asking that you sing this song as a response to what God has called us to do. To follow him, to follow Christ with all boldness, irrespective of what may come. In good times, in bad times, in long life, or or in bloody death for the name of Jesus. That we will follow him. Praying for boldness, praying for help in the Holy Spirit to do that. I pray that, that as we respond uh, this way, that, that the, song, the words that we would sing, the song that we sang a couple of weeks ago, that the words that we would sing would be the prayer of our hearts as individuals and as a church. Friend, if you need to talk to me about what it means to be saved, what it means to know Jesus, I'll be here at the front. You come grab me this morning as we're responding and singing. Tell me you want to know how to know Jesus. Friend, if you need prayer for more boldness with the gospel in your workplace, you want me to pray with you. Come grab me. I'll pray with you during this time. But we're going to sing together in response as a church these words. This is our prayer that God would do these things in us, that he would give us this sort of heart to follow Christ with boldness of the gospel, irrespective of what might come our way. Let's pray. God, we see in your church through your word this morning. Great courage. Courage. To proclaim Christ and Him crucified. In the face of threat. In the face of obstacles. To do that with boldness.